Exams are back, as you see. Um, average was a little bit up from last time. Last time we averaged about very low 60%. This time with one less question, so you had actually a uh, chance for a couple for a couple for two more points last time than this one, and it was about almost 10. It ended up being about 10 points higher than the last average. So it, it did go up, which I guess that means I'm glad I did end up sending it home because otherwise it probably would have been even worse if it had been done in in class. So I'm going to look for number four. I will try to make number four significantly easier. I'll try to get back to where I was on the first one. So I don't know what I've done differently in the last two, but some, something different. So I will try to look at those and. Uh, do something a little bit easier for the for the final for the fourth for the fourth exam fourth exam final as I mentioned is usually a little bit easier for people just because half of it is from these four tests so you have four tests to study and concentrate on if you know those four then you know the half the final you're already ready for so I'm going to come up with something else for exam four and try to try to see if we can push those grades push those grades up a little a little bit for it. Which is one of the good things is that the four exams are only 200 points, so it's not like it's four exams in the final and you're done. So you have all the other stuff. So if you're doing the homework and the articles and all of that stuff, you usually can do, still do very well in the class. Due today is the third set of solar observations. Um, I take them now. I'll take them after, after class. I'll take them, or you can submit them through the D2L Dropbox anytime before six o'clock tomorrow. I'll take a look at those and give you feedback on them, hopefully on Friday. I have all your other stuff graded too. I just didn't want to take the extra time today. I'll hand that back during lab on Friday as well. But everything else is graded. All grades should be up on D2L right now and everything should be updated. Homework 6 is also due on Friday as well as Quiz 6 this weekend will be available starting on Friday on chapters 13 and 14. So we'll have those two. Those two coming up. And third article review is due the end of next week. So you've got another, another week on that one. That's the third and, and final of the article reviews. So um, on, on the exam, I'm not going to go over anything. I finished grading the last of them this morning because I was the last of the ones that were submitted between um, late Monday night and early Tuesday morning. I just I didn't print out and grade until this morning. So I didn't get a chance to go through and look at any specific questions that gave trouble or didn't give trouble. Um, I wanted to make sure I got them back to you as quick as I could. But what I'm going to do, instead of going over specific questions right now, I'm just going to go ahead and take the answer key and I'm going to post it up on D2L. So you'll have probably by this weekend, give me a little bit of time to get it scanned and in this week. But I'll hopefully have exam one, exam two, and exam three. I'll have all of them up there so you have the answers, you'll know what the correct answers were, and you'll be able to use those then to study for your, for your final. So those should be up there. If you have, of course, if you have specific questions or you want to ask about them, I'd be happy to, to do that. But otherwise, I'll plan on having all of them up there and available for you sometime this weekend. I've got that for you, too. Okay, Sounds good. All right. Any other questions on what's coming up? It's not here. I get everybody who's here. They're not here, not here, not here. Okay. All right. Picture of the day for today, then. You get to watch a little video here. This is Sandy. To watch Sandy coming in over the week or so that it took to, took to hit us. And I'm going to start the video plan. It takes about three minutes to <coughs> run through this. And you'll see Sandy developing out there, you know, well down south off of Central America here. You can see the storm start to develop. And you'll see it as, watch it, as it moves up the coast. 
of the United States. Now, it develops there, it develops over the warmer waters and increases, oh, increases in strength over the, over the water. So it gets very strong when it's coming through those nice warm waters of the Caribbean. And that's why they tend to hit so bad in Florida that everything's so much warmer down there. It comes and strikes the land with so much power and does all of the damage. Now Florida also gets hit because Florida is pretty much just a peninsula sticking out into the Gulf of Mexico and into the Atlantic Ocean. So there's not a lot of land there to slow things down or to weaken the storm. As it comes up here, and as you've noticed if you watched you know, where everybody got hit, well, they sure got clobbered in New Jersey and New York. They got, they got clobbered by it you know, horribly. But by the time it got in here, well, we got a lot of rain. But it wasn't, it wasn't near as windy as I had expected, at least where I was down in York. It was not near as bad as I expected things to be. So, but that is because, of course, it blunts just coming in off the coast. It's hitting with full power right on the coast. And depending on exactly where it hits and where the winds are, depends on how everything will work. But you'll see as it's moving up the coast here. And I should say this isn't unusual for the solar system. We mentioned this when we talked about our little unit on the solar system. We mentioned, for example, the great red spot on Jupiter. Well, it's not all that different than this. Except that instead of this storm, which lasted a week, from the time it was forming until it finally starts to dissipate off up in Canada. You know, those, this storm on Jupiter, the great red spot, has been there for hundreds of years. So it's a giant storm just like this, giant cyclonic storm, swirling, swirling winds just like, the, just like this in the atmosphere of Jupiter. But it lasts a much longer time. So there's something else going on in Jupiter that causes these storms. You know, we're glad it doesn't last hundreds of years, right? We don't want one of these things keep coming around and around. We get new ones that form. But on Jupiter, something different is going on, perhaps, that causes you know, much larger storms to occur. We also see it on some of the other planets, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, the very large gaseous planets. We see a lot of large storms that last not just for you know, a week, they're here and gone, but last for a much longer period of time. There, we're coming in. That's the 29th. So that would have been what? That would have been Monday. We're on to the 30th. Would have been Tuesday. So that was some of the worst of the storm there. You can see it's sort of centered right over, the east right over the East Coast right now. And then you watch over the last time, it'll sort of fade off and move up into Canada. As it starts to weaken, again, being over land, it has no more water. It has that, doesn't have that warm water for an energy supply. And it will slowly start to fade. And then eventually, as it gets further up north, it just starts to completely dissipate into the rest of the, into the, rest of the Earth's atmosphere. And then wait for the next one, too to form, although we're reaching the end of the hurricane season, so hopefully we're, we're done for now. Wait till next year. So, and there it's ending up somewhere out there, you know, up over Ontario, you could almost see the center of it as it, as it ended there. So, question, questions? No, no, no. Okay, we're going to head a little bit further out then. All right, we'll head a little bit further out, out into the universe, out into the galaxy. And we were looking at this last time, as I recall, that we were looking at, you know, the talk about, trying to talk about the formation of the galaxy and what the galaxy looked like. And we had the halo, the area around the galaxy. Yep. The area around the galaxy, that formed earliest. So that was the earliest part that formed. You would have had this great spherical, cloud. 
of gas and dust. Does that sound familiar, right? Big cloud of gas and dust. We talked about that with the formation of the solar system, the formation of the earth, formation of the sun, you know, formation of stars. You always start off with this big, little bit bigger cloud in this time if you're forming the galaxy because you're forming hundreds of billions of stars. But still, similar type of thing, a great big cloud, spherical cloud of gas and dust. And within it, you would have formed pockets of stars and clusters and that's when you would have formed the globular clusters would have formed very early on so you know little globular clusters formed throughout throughout this my little globular clusters there would have formed throughout this great spherical cloud same way stars form within a galaxy right little bits of pockets happen to condense have a little bit more material happen to condense and form a grouping of stars so these would have formed large groups of stars and they'd be spread out among the halo. That's what we see today. We see those globular clusters are still there. The rest of this gas and dust isn't. The rest of the gas and dust has collapsed inward. So this gas actually was able to collapse down into a disk and ended up forming the disk of material that forms the galaxy. So as the material started to spin more and more, the, the material buttoned down towards a disk. Same way it did with the solar. Sounds like the formation of the solar system, I hope. Right? We had a big spherical cloud of gas and dust that collapsed to form the sun at the center and planets around it. Well, the same thing happened, he happened here. You're forming a bigger cloud of gas and dust, forming the galactic center, okay, a lot of mass at the center, and a lot of stars and clusters and gas orbiting around. So it's similar to a process by which we form the solar system. That leaves the orange as being the older material, the first stuff that formed. What's left over is still up there in the halo. So you've got a halo here. You have the disk here. And then in between, you kind of have the middle part, you have the bulge. So not just a center, but a little bulge there. So around the center of the galaxy, you have the disk, but you have a little bit of an expanse here at the center. That's sort of a mix. That's got some of these older stars and some of the younger stars. Younger stars forming primarily in the disk of the galaxy. Older stars are primarily left over in the halo. So that's sort of where we were finishing up last time. All the gas and the dust collided and collapsed into this disk where new stars are currently forming. Once you evacuate the halo of all that gas and dust, there's no further star formation there. So when we look at objects in the halo, they're all very old. They're all 10, 12, 13 billion years old because there's been no gas or dust to form new stars from them. So there's no to form new stars from. All right, so that's where we're finishing up. We'll go on. If we look at the galaxy, let's look at the galaxy in the infrared. Okay, we looked at the galaxy in the visible. You saw some bright areas, you saw a lot of dark, dusty areas. Now when we look at it in the infrared, notice that the dusty areas tend to disappear. There's not those big globs of dust here that are blocking out material. A little bit of material here still, you can see, but not near as much as we had in the visible part of the spectrum. When we look in the infrared, we can see there's a brighter spot at the center. We can see where the center of our galaxy is. And that is because the infrared radiation passes through the dust a lot easier. It's not as blocked by the dust, so it passes through. And we can still observe, even though we can't see the center of our galaxy in visible light, 
We can see it in infrared. We can see it in radio because that dust doesn't affect those two near as much. So we can easily see the center of our galaxy in those types of radiations. So there's the center of our galaxy. Still nothing amazing, right? We'll come back and look a little bit more. We've been able to zoom in in much more detail. But you can certainly see where the concentration of material is that you don't see in visible light in this image. Yep. It's one way to go fast. All right. When we look at the orbits, come back to my diagram here. When we look in the disk, everything orbits together like the solar system does. Everything orbits around the center of the galaxy, just like the planets and the uh, asteroids orbit around the sun. They all orbit in the same direction. So when you're talking about stars that are in the disk of the galaxy, they're all orbiting around together. It's not like you have you know, Mercury orbiting. Here's the sun. You don't have Mercury going this way and Venus going this way and Earth going this way and Mars and Jupiter. They're all going the same direction. Well, the stars in the disk are all doing the same thing too. They're all orbiting around the center of the galaxy in the same direction. The halo is different. The halo, if you look at the red lines there, they're orbiting in all sorts of random directions. Some of them are going this way, some of them are going that way, backwards, forwards. They're going in all different directions. It tells us something about when they formed. The, the halo stars formed a long time ago when the, when the galaxy was essentially a great big sphere. It had not yet started forming a lot of stars. It just formed the first few. And those ones that are left over were, random, were orbiting randomly. Until it condensed and contracted to form the plane of the galaxy, the disk of the galaxy, everything was all going in random directions. So when we find these old stars and the globular clusters out there, they're all orbiting in all sorts of odd directions. There's no coherent motion together with them. We see that in the solar system with the comets. Okay? Comets orbit around our sun in all sorts of odd directions. Everything else is in a nice flat plane. Well, comets can come up from above and down below the solar system and back out. All sorts of directions, just the way these halo stars do. So again, it sort of gives us a similarity in how the solar system formed versus how the galaxy formed. And you get sort of a mixture when you get down to the bulge. Here you get very ordered rotation. Everything is going the same direction. You don't find young stars in the disk that are rotating around the other direction. You don't find any. You might find some old stars just because they're really these stars. They're really halo stars that just happen to be orbiting in, that, in the disk. The bulge is sort of a mixture. It's kind of random, but it's got an overall sense of direction to it. So it's sort of rotating with the rest of the galaxy, but not quite. So it's sort of a mixture in between the two. And we'll see that the bulge is kind of a combination of the halo and the disk. Now, I've already gone through, I've sort of started on galaxy formation a little bit ahead. But if we want to explain how galaxies formed, not just our galaxy, but say any galaxy, we have to be able to explain the different properties that we see. The primary parts of the galaxy are the disk, the halo, and the bulge. And we want to be able to explain how galaxies formed. We want to be able to explain why does the disk have these properties. Why is it so flattened? Why does it have old and young stars? It does have gas and dust. It does have stars forming. Everything's moving in circular orbits. Spiral arms, where do those come from? Overall, whitish color with blue spiral arms. 
So how do we explain that? How are we going to compare that to, say, the halo, which instead of being white is very red in color? So if you look at the stars in the halo, they're primarily red now. Doesn't mean they always were. Just means that the young stars, the hot stars, are gone. They had, they have a, they've lived through their lives. But it's reddish in color. And the bulge, I'm going to leave off the bulge for right now. It's just kind of in between. But spiral arms in the disk, no structure in the halo. Ordered orbits, random orbits. Ongoing star formation, no star formation for 10 billion years. You know, a star like the sun in the halo is reaching the end of its life or has reached the end of its life. Gas and dust in the disk, no gas and dust. Only old stars in the halo, both young and old stars. So we have primarily the young stars are only in the disk. Old stars can be any place. They can be in either the disk or in the halo, or the bulge, of course, as well. The halo is pretty much a spherical shape. Not quite, it's probably a little bit flattened, but overall spherical, whereas the disk is you know, flattened down like a pancake, very, very thin relative to its size. So what we want to do is to look at all these properties from your book and then say, you know, how could we explain how galaxies are forming? This is what we know. You know these are the things we know to be true. Right? These are our observations. We can observe how the gas, that there is gas in the disk and that there's not gas in, gas in the halo. We can observe where the old stars are and the young stars are. We can observe the structures. We can observe the different colorings. That's what we can see. So any model that explains how this galaxy formed or how our galaxy formed has to be able to predict these properties. Right? If it predicts something else, if it works and does everything else but says, oh, spiral arms should be all very red. Doesn't work then because we know they're not. That's an observation. We can go look at the stars in those spiral arms and see what color they are. So any theory that we come up with has to be able to explain you know, this table worth of, of properties. So here's what we think might have happened. Um, Galaxies would, the galaxy would have started forming, again, this big cloud of gas and dust. Um, again, why might it start collapsing? Similar with the stars, you might need something to start it. So perhaps you had multiple clouds. And again, we're doing the same thing we did for stars, but on a much larger scale. So maybe several clouds of gas and dust are colliding together. They may have been forming some stars. Collide together, form a big cloud with some very slight rotation. Remember that happened with the solar system. It didn't have much rotation, but it had some slight turn to it. And as it collapses, as these things collide, stars that have formed, recall, stars don't collide together. Okay? You can smash all these things together, stars are going to pass right by each other. They're so tiny relative to the distances between them, they're essentially never going to collide. One in a billion, billion, billion? Yeah, eventually you might just happen to do that. You know, I can bounce a couple, bounce a couple of BBs around this room and maybe two of them will hit each other, you know, if I have a couple of them. If I do it with the same number of beach balls, boy, they're going to bang into each other. Same thing, you got these big giant clouds of gas and dust and you get these little pinpoints of stars. Relatively, we know how big stars are, but compared to how far apart they are, they're tiny. So the stars don't collide, but the gas and dust do. The gas and dust collide, it loses energy, they fall down in the disk. So it con that condenses all the gas and dust to the disk, leaving the stars up there. Again, the stars aren't colliding, they're staying right where they were. They were in orbit. They're just going to continue orbiting just as they were. Now, they'd be young stars here as this is forming, so you'd have a very blue halo at the time, bluish-white halo, because you had 
lots of, lots of young stars. But you've lost all the gas and dust. So no new ones are forming. So what happens now, what we see in the present day, would be, okay, there's our disk. There's our halo. Now they're very red stars. Not because the stars have changed, but the brightest stars have changed, right? The bright stars, when, when a cluster of stars first, first forms, the very brightest stars on the main sequence are right up here, right? Those are the brightest stars in that cluster. When a cluster forms, everything's on the main sequence and you've got very blue. Blue stars. When you go a little bit later and wait 10 billion years, it, we looked more something like that. There aren't any bright blue stars. Now all your bright stars are over here, and even though I'm using a blue marker, the blue is red. So the brightest stars in that cluster will actually be red. So that's, just, that's, just, that's how the coloring changes. It's not that the stars are changing, but these stars have gone through their lives. They're gone. They don't exist anymore in the, as the galaxy has gone through its life. So right now, those, those don't exist, and the cluster is only going to get redder and redder over time because you're going to be keep wiping out all of these stars further and further down the main sequence. Everything's going to look redder and redder in the halo. So if you can come back in another couple billion years, then it would look even redder. Come back in 20 billion years, even redder as you, more and more of those stars have gone through its life. But this is what we think would have, would have done to have formed the, to form the galaxy. Again, if you look at it, it looks, should look very similar to what we talked about a while back when we went through and talked about how the solar system formed. Or when we talked about how stars formed. The general idea is very similar. What's left over when you collide the material together? We've collapsed it to make a star, and you might have a planetary system around that. When you're doing it on a larger scale, you collapse it to form the galaxy, and the stars behave then like the planets. The stars are orbiting around the central portion of that galaxy. But it really explains the different colors that we see, the red stars. It explains the blue stars. It explains why the gas and dust are not in the halo, why there's no gas and dust there, why there is gas and dust down here. So it explains those properties that we went over in the previous, previous table. So it sort of explains everything. Does that mean it's the right theory? Not necessarily. Who knows? We won't come up with something even better later on. But it fits the observations that we have right now, and that's the way you know, science works. You fit, try to fit the observations with the simplest theory you can come up with that meets, that fits, that matches everything that you can see. Now, when we look at the galaxy, I told you our galaxy is a spiral galaxy, but we talked about last time it's very hard to, you can't see that as a spiral galaxy. We can't look at our galaxy as a and see it as a spiral directly. We can measure some things. We can look here, and this is sort of an interpretation of what our galaxy might look like. It's got some kind of bar of material here at the center, and then spiral arms moving around it. And we can actually measure. If we measure out with, remember the 21 centimeter hydrogen line, right? We could measure the hydrogen gas with that 21 centimeter line. So we'd look at that. We could measure where the hydrogen gas is, so we can map out much further in the galaxy, and we can actually trace out parts of these spiral arms. So we can actually see part of it from inside, but not all of it. And again, it's like trying to determine what the building looks like stuck inside one room. Look out a couple windows, see if you can get some kind of idea of what it looks like, but you're sort of trapped. You're usually doing a lot of comparison to other, to other galaxies. 
But we do know then that our galaxy is a spiral. So we can actually make measurements to show that ours is a sp our galaxy is a spiral. Where do the spiral arms come from? Good question. If you got an answer for me, that's, that's great. But I, I can't tell you where the spiral arms come from. Some of the things we know about the spiral arms is that they don't rotate around with the galaxy. They're not like a um, pinwheel almost. They're, they'd, nor, they'd rotate at different speeds if they were. They don't, so they don't rotate along with the galaxy. You know, think about how it works with the planets, right? Inner planets spin faster, outer planets spin slower. Eventually you'd wind everything, keep winding it all up. The arms would get wound up over time. That doesn't happen. Because it would only take a few rotations to do that. And the galaxy might take a couple hundred million years to rotate once. A couple hundred million years, a long time. But that means that in a billion years it would rotate five times. In two billion years it would rotate ten. You'd be pretty wound up in two billion years. Compared to the age of the universe, that's nothing. If that were the case, if they were rotating along with the galaxy, if they were spinning or they were winding up, they're not ro so they can't be rotating along with the galaxy. Otherwise, all the spiral galaxies we'd see now would look like this. They'd all be tightly wound up or wound up into disks and we wouldn't see anything anymore. Because it would only take a few of those rotations to do it. Yes, they're long from our point of view, but if these galaxies have been around for five billion years, let's see our sun's five billion years old, right? So that means at 200 million years you're talking quite a few rotations. You're talking 25 rotations. Our galaxy should be tightly wound up, like much, much more tightly wound up than this after 25 rotations worth. So that doesn't happen. So there's something else that actually is, explains how they work. And the way to think about it is almost as a traffic jam. They don't move along with, the spiral arms don't move along with the galaxy. They're there. They actually do rotate around the galaxy, but much, much slower than the stars. So stars will move in and out of them. So stars will pass through the spiral arms. They don't stay in a spiral arm they will pass through that spiral arm. And the best way to think about it is perhaps in terms of a traffic jam. Okay? The cars move in and out of the traffic jam and so they are bunched up right in that area but they're going through it but it's not the same cars in it. Maybe even better. How about if you've got a nice slow truck on the highway that everybody's passing? Right? And everybody's going slower around it because everybody's trying to get around. You've got a whole bunch of cars back passed up by this truck. Well, they're always going to be there. There's always going to be a whole bunch of cars there, but they're not the same cars. Right? You, come, you look at it right now and take a picture of it again five minutes later, it's still going to look exactly the same. Right? You're going to see this car and you're going to see 10 or 20 cars bunched up, this big truck and 10 or 20 cars bunched up by it. But they're going to be different cars. The other cars have moved along through. The stars have done the same thing. The stars get bunched up in what we call a density wave. So they're stuck there for a little bit. They slow down. They get away and out of it, and then they proceed back to their regular speed. So that's how we think the spiral arms sort of work. It's what we call a density wave. Density of material, that's where star, a lot of stars form. Why are they blue? Because that's where the spiral, that's where the, the stars are forming. When you have this wave, you have all this material condensed together, you're much more likely to get star formation as, as clouds are co collapsing into each other. They're going to look blue because those blue stars, even though they stay there, for, they stay and they form in those spiral arms, and I said everything moves out of them, they don't get a chance to, right? They don't live long enough. 
They're only going to live a few million years, 10 million years. They're not even going to get out of that spiral arm before they go supernova, reach the end of their lives. So that'll leave the, star, the spiral arms looking relatively blue, but it's not the same stars. The other stars will have moved out of them. The older stars will have moved out of the spiral arms over time. Just like, again, with the traffic jam with that truck. It always looks the same when you look at it, and it's moving through, and it's moving too, right? Slowly, if you take the same spot, well, that truck's gone. You come and look two minutes later, the truck's not here. Now it's, you know, a couple miles down the, down the highway. But the jam is moving with it, so they're, they're, rotate, they're moving slower, but it's moving slower than the general, pop, general speed of the cars on the highway. The whole for all spiral arms are moving slower than the general speed of the stars in the galaxy. So it's sort of a way to try to think about how the spiral arms work. It's not just like a big pinwheel. They don't rotate like a solid or anything. They're not solid. They're just a big piles of gas and dust, so there's no reason they'd rotate as a big solid object, you know, like a pinwheel, even though they look, they look a lot like that. But they do. It's this what we call a density wave that explains how we do it. And again, think of it as like that, tra like that traffic jam. So as they're moving through, this is where we see the star formation. When you get those density waves, you get supernovae occurring. So you had a first set of stars forming, supernova explosion, shock wave, you get more new stars forming. So it sort of illuminates that. And those stars, again, are slowly moving through that, that spiral arm. They're slowly moving through those spiral arms. Now the big thing, and I already told you, is where do the spiral arms, that, that explains how the spiral arms work. Okay, so that explains what's, what may perhaps what's going on. It's our good theory, again, good theory. Matches the things we see. Could it be wrong? There's a lot of this stuff, and especially for the rest of this class, even the other parts, but a lot of this we don't, we don't know fully. I'm giving you the best ideas we have at the current time. But where do they come from in this first place is a very good question. What forms them in the first place? So what makes that truck go slow, go 50 miles an hour down the highway or something? You know, that's what, what starts it. That's, that's the key. Is we don't know how it starts. What causes it to form? We see spiral arms in a lot of galaxies, as we'll look at in the next chapter. We don't see them in all galaxies. Not every galaxy has spiral arms. Some galaxies are flattened to a disk like this, but don't have spiral arms. Lots of ones that are flattened do have spiral arms. But it's not all of them. So it's not something that forms every single time. There are certain, certainly times when it does not occur. So what is that exact cause is a very good question. We have a pretty good idea, we think, of how they, once they form, how they continue. But what forms it in the first place, again, is an excellent question. Didn't I just, oh, I'm down there. There we go. Let's go the right direction. All right. The mass of the Milky Way galaxy. How much mass do we have there? Go back to Kepler's laws, right? Nobody wants to think about Kepler's laws again, I know, after that last lab. But Kepler's laws tell us that if we see something, or one object orbiting another, we can determine the mass of that system. So the sun here, orbiting around the galaxy, tells us something about all of the mass inside the orbit of the sun. Doesn't tell us anything about this. Uh, any material that's outside, that's further out in the galaxy, away from the sun, does not affect its orbit. Does not affect its period. 
It all gets canceled out. The only material that matters is that which is inside the orbit of the sun. So when we measure that, when we measure that, if we measure the rotational period of the sun around the center of the galaxy, oh, it is about 220 or so million years. If we measure the distance between the center of the galaxy and the sun, oh, about eight kiloparsecs. We can use that yucky yucky equation from last time, last week, and go through and you can calculate the mass. No, it's not the lab for Friday, I promise. You don't have to do it again. But we could do it. We could go through and calculate the mass that is inside the orbit of the sun. Doesn't tell us the orbit of the galaxy, but it starts to give us an estimate. It tells us how much matter is in here. If we could find stars that are further away, further away, further away, we get a better estimate of the mass. If we can look for those stars that are at the very edge of the galaxy, then we can get the best measurement of how much the galaxy, how much mass the galaxy has. So we can determine that. And what we find, what this means, I should say, is that like in the solar, in the solar system, what we see is that the planets move fast when they're close to the sun, right? Mercury zips around the sun every 88 days. And when you get out to Uranus and Neptune, you're talking almost 200 years for Neptune to orbit around once. So things will orbit a lot slower when you get further out. And that's what we see. That's what this dashed line shows you. When you get far enough out, now you certainly get very odd things that happen here because in the solar system, all the mass is right here and the planets don't even count. All the mass is right there. In the galaxy, it isn't like that because you have a lot of mass as you work your way out. You have a lot of mass there still. So when we look at how, how stars are rotating as you go in close to the center of the galaxy and work your way outward, there's some ups and downs there. And then what we expect is when we get out to the end of the visible part of the galaxy, about 15 kiloparsecs or so, maybe, from the galactic center, it would, should start to drop down. You'd start to see, okay, we've got all the matter there. Yeah, there's a few random stars out there, but they don't contribute to the mass of the galaxy. Not if you've got 300 million solar masses here and, you know, couple dozen out there, big deal, right? It's like having Pluto way out there. Well, big deal. It's, the mass doesn't make any difference. But it's not what we see. So we'd expect to see that dashed line. We actually see the pink line. Things are going faster and faster. The further out you get away from the center of the galaxy, as far out as we can measure, they don't slow down. Things actually speed up. So that would be like Neptune traveling faster in its orbit than Mercury. Doesn't, doesn't seem right. But that is what is observed. And what that means, it's telling us something about the mass of our galaxy. That the mass that we'd expect, like the solar system, you're expecting that all the mass is concentrated at the center. It makes perfect sense from everything else we've done. But it isn't. It looks like the mass has to be, there has to be a lot of mass out there well beyond what we observe as the edge of the galaxy. There's got to be a lot of matter out there. It's one of the things we call dark matter because we don't see it. Now, it's not real bright where we see all these glowing things. Oh, that would explain it. We see all this stuff out here. Yes, we see some you know, globular clusters and things, but again, compared to the mass in here, all this is relatively small. Everything we see is relatively small. And it's not just a small amount of mass. If you have some amount of mass here, okay, what we can see in our galaxy we have to have about double that that we're not seeing. So for every star we're seeing, 
That means there's two more stars worth of matter, not necessarily stars, but stars worth of matter that we're not seeing that aren't at the center of the galaxy but are much further out. All that for every one we see, there's that much more material further out in order to explain this curve. The other thing it could mean, that's the, that's the common explanation, is it could mean that maybe we don't understand gravity at those large distances. Maybe gravity behaves differently on such large scales. You know, it's well beyond anything we're used to. So maybe gravity behaves differently and Newton and Kepler and Einstein are wrong when you start talking about this. But if not, you've got to come up with something better. You've got to come up with a better theory than Einstein's that explains, oh, here's why it should drop off. So you know, where is this what we call dark matter? There's something out there. Based on our current observations and current theories, it says that there's got to be a lot of matter out there in our galaxy we see its gravitational effects, but we don't see it at all. We don't see it in visible light. We don't see you know, radio waves coming from it. We don't see anything else. It's completely dark. So what is it going to be? And again, when I say it's dark matter, it means it's dark. It just doesn't mean it's not visible in visible light, because we can look in x-rays, we can look in gamma rays, we can look in radio waves. You know, so if it's just big dark clouds of hydrogen gas, well, we could detect those. Some of the things we couldn't detect very easily. Black holes, the mass of the sun. Remember those are relatively small. The stars that form you know, stellar mass, meaning you know, stars that went supernova and left a black hole behind, they might be eight or 10 solar masses. That's not going to account for, we're talking about many billions of solar masses we're looking for. We're talking for a lot of mass. That's not going to probably count for enough of the material. Brown dwarfs or faint white dwarfs or red dwarfs. Okay, brown dwarfs are almost impossible to detect if they're far away. White dwarfs get pretty faint, again, if they're well out away from the galaxy. Red dwarfs, very small stars. But again, the question is why did so many form so far out and not visible? Maybe the best, op- one of the best options we have right now, and it accounts for, you know, we can get evidence for maybe some of the matter accounted for that way but we've never been able to account for all of the matter that we seem to be missing. The other one that's sort of put up there is some of these strange subatomic particles that just permeate space and have some mass but you can't detect them very easily. Certainly possible, but for a good scientific theory you've got to have a way to test it. So they have to make a prediction. Here's this particle. Okay, how can I go about detecting this particle? What sort of signature is it going to leave? other than gravity, which is the only way we're detecting it. What other prediction is it going to make? So those kind of things are very, are very difficult to, you know, just to take and say, oh, well, here's an easy way to do it, but you, you know, I can say this is how it's done, but there's no test. You need a way to be able to test the material and say, here's, how, here's what this is going to make a prediction. You know, Einstein came up with general relativity, made a prediction that it was going to bend starlight long before that was known that it would happen. We need something like that. We need a theory that's going to come up with something that we can predict in order to explain what this dark matter is. But it seems to account for a big chunk of the universe. In fact, it turns out that, jumping ahead a couple chapters, but the matter that we're used to, you know, everything we're used to, all the stars, all the galaxies, you know, hydrogen, helium, carbon, all that normal stuff, is probably about 3% of the universe. 97% is something else. Between dark matter here, what else, what, what could it be? Or what we call dark energy. 
But that, that's a couple chapters ahead. But the, what we see, everything we see and everything we've studied in astronomy is just this very tiny little fraction of what seems to exist in the universe. So here's one example. So looking for white dwarfs, trying to detect those white dwarfs. You can't really see them, but you can detect them indirectly. If you look at very faint star fields, look out in the depths of space and distant galaxies, you'll actually see what we call gravitational lensing. Recall, according to Einstein, this star can bend light. So all of a sudden, as, you pass, as things pass through, here's a very faint object. You can't see it. Could be a very cool white dwarf, very far away. You know, not real close to us. We'd still see it there, but very far away. And if it passes right in front of a star, it's going to bend the light from that star around it and make it seem brighter than it otherwise would have. So, doesn't look like much, but fainter object, a little bit brighter object. Over time, as it pa- as this white dwarf happens to pass through it. Possibly that can account for maybe half of the mass we need. That still leaves a lot of mass that is unaccounted for in order to be able to explain just that rotation curve. How how the stars rotate when they get far out away from the galaxy. We need a lot more mass than we we are able to account for by any any of the methods. So in order to account for black holes, well this would, black holes would be detected by this too. Right, even though you can't see the black hole, if it passes in front of a star, And there's that many of them out there. Some of them are going to be passing in front of stars. It would bend the light, brighten it, and we'd actually be able to detect that. And looking at all these very faint fields, we could actually determine and try to get an estimate of how much material is actually out there. And there should be a lot of low-mass white dwarves out here, scattered scattered around in the halo. But they're well beyond anything that we see for the visible disk of the galaxy. So they're not just out here and here. Those would be counted in. We'd get, we'd get those measured. It's everything outside this regular boundary that we see for our galaxy. There's a lot of material further out that we don't know about. We know other than through its gravitational effects. All right, getting towards the end here of 14, the galactic center said we'd actually get a chance to look at it. Well, zooming in there, there's the visible part of the galactic center. On the left, we're looking at in the visible. You don't see a whole lot there. In fact, that little square is marking the center of our galaxy. Sure isn't the brightest part of the picture, right? Again, there's so much dust there that it's blocked out. But we can look in there if we look in the infrared. So here's an image looking in the infrared. But even there, we're seeing some stars. I'm starting to see some stars closer down. I'm getting rid of a lot of the dust and seeing through it. Center of our galaxy still isn't a whole lot in the infrared. If you had enough dust there, you know, eventually you start blocking out the infrared. Not as easy to block out as it is, you know, visible light, but it, you get enough dust. <coughs> so there's the center of our galaxy in the infrared. I still had to highlight it. We still had to highlight it, otherwise you wouldn't have seen it, right? You wouldn't have picked that spot out as the center of our galaxy, other than it's the center of the image. Yes, ma'am. We can, detect, we can detect the center in radio waves. We can detect the emission from the center of the radio waves. And we can measure um, the distribution of stars. So when we look at these globular clusters, we can measure where they are. And all these globular clusters, we can measure their distances. So when we went over, when we went over we talked about last time, we talked about how we measured them with the RLI ray stars. We can measure how far away all these globular clusters are away from us. So we can map them out. We end up out here someplace. 
we find the globular clusters are scattered around here. It makes sense under our theory of how the galaxy formed that these globular clusters, they wouldn't just be centered, they'd be centered around wherever the center of the galaxy is. So by looking at the distribution of the globular clusters tells us roughly what the galaxy is like. Where is the center of our galaxy and we know it's so far away from us. We can measure it again. We can measure it in radio waves too. Radio waves do even better. I can actually detect and I'll show you an image later that will show you, you know, what, what does it look like in the radio part of the spectrum. But there's a couple different ways we can tell you know, where is the center. Of, when we can't, good point. We can't, you know, where's the center of Blocker Hall? You can't leave this room. You don't know. Does Blocker Hall go off that way? Does it go off that way? Does it go, you know, you don't, you don't know. And it's a good question because it's hard to tell, but we can make some measurements and we can see some of these globular clusters which we believe would be scattered uniformly on average around the center of the galaxy. Using that as the assumption, we can then determine where the center of the galaxy is. So there's the center. Again, even in, even in infrared, it's completely obscured. We don't see anything. We cannot see the center of our galaxy in, in the infrared. When we look into the radio, as we zoom in here, actually radio and x-rays, it kind of goes back and forth, but here's, a, here's an infrared image. We can certainly see some brightness towards the center of our galaxy. As we go further in, we can actually see the brightness. The red in the radio images, the reds are among the brightest objects. The blue and then the black is essentially no signal. Blue is very, very faint. And sort of color-coded up in here up until the red. The red becomes the most intense radio emission. Well, we can see that. And we're looking at an area, in this case, about 25 parsecs or about 75 light years across. So we're looking at a very small part of the center of our galaxy. When we zoom in even further, that's looking at x-rays. We're seeing a lot of x-ray emission from the center of the galaxy. And we can see further in, now this is one parsec, three light years. That would not even be the distance between the Sun and Alpha Centauri, would not be quite that much. So we're looking very close in there and you actually get some interesting and you know, is this where the spiral structure comes from? Perhaps because this has some sort of spiral structure at the center. But why do some, why does some areas of the, ga some galaxies have that and some not? Within that one parsec is a lot of mass. It's about three, what is it now, about three to four million times the mass of the sun. So imagine that. You've got the distance from here to Alpha Centauri, you've got three or four million suns packed in there. Can't do it, right? You just can't put that many stars in there. Well, you could, but they're not going to stay stable. So that's what we're going to have there is a large black hole. So what you're looking at here would be the center of this, would be the black hole at the center of our galaxy. About three or four million times the mass of the sun. Again, you can't see the black hole. Even one that big, you're not going to be able to see. But we could detect its effects through the different radiation that we see. So I'm going to stop there and then I'll finish up. I've got a little bit more to do on the galactic center and then we'll finish up this and go on to other galaxies on Friday. So don't forget the solar observations. If you have them, I'll take them now or you can submit them in the Dropbox before 6 o'clock tomorrow. And homework is due on Friday. So. Have a good rest of the day.